if by being you and doing what you believe in makes people who are part of the problem uncomfortable, you should be okay with that. All right, we're on it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Take a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. Welcome back to another episode. Today's amazing guest is Antoinette Latouf. Antoinette is a multi-award winning journalist, author, broadcaster, columnist, TEDx speaker and mental health ambassador, as well as the co-host of The Briefing podcast, Australia's fastest growing news and analytics podcast. She's passionate about diversity and inclusion, co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, a not-for-profit that's increasing cultural and linguistic diversity in mainstream media. She was AFR's Top 100 Women of Influence in 2019. She's written a book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People, published in May 2022. She writes for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian, Women's Agenda, and Mamma Mia. She is just an all-round superstar. I'm excited to bring you our conversation today. Hope you enjoy. Antoinette, thank you for joining me in my house, the first podcast we're doing in a more laid-back setting, and I couldn't be uh, more grateful to have a friend and a very respected industry professional to talk about an important topic. And one thing I'm grateful most about having you as a friend is the ability to know you're always going to tell it how it is. (laughs) Honesty. (laughs) And uh, I want you to tell me an opinion to do with mental health that might be controversial but you believe wholeheartedly? Oh, gosh, there are so many. I still think there are so many. There are so many, but I still think that when it comes to postnatal depression, like people understand anxiety, depression, a little bit about schizophrenia, a little bit about bipolar. When it comes to perinatal or postnatal depression or anxiety, I, I can't help but feel there's still this little bit of judgment that, oh, it's because you're ungrateful or you're not really maternal or you're a bit selfish or you love your career more. There's still this undertone that a love for a child and leaning into that maternal instinct is and should be the most important thing that trumps everything else. And I I guess that's because unlike other mental illnesses, this is so intrinsically tied to a precious, vulnerable life that you're in charge of caring for and cultivating. Um, And so I I just feel that even though people can be generally more open-minded and understanding of other mental illnesses, although there are still taboos there, I'm not pretending everything's amazing, I do still believe there are inherent judgments among women as well and men that in some way it was the mother's fault or she was ungrateful or unprepared or too selfish. Wow. I've never thought about it like that and, I, you know obviously understand that there's stigma associated with it but not to the fact that if you're experiencing it 
that you genuinely believe people are second guessing your love for your own offspring. Yeah, and also second guessing your like just your level of vulnerability or that despite feeling this, you should just get up and soldier on. Because if you are as an individual experiencing a litany of mental health disorders, you can crawl, stay in your bed and never shower and never eat. And um, you don't have this tiny life dependent on you. And I think that's what separates people's level of empathy because there's a sense that, well, just get up, you've got to do your job. Your most important job is to look after this child. So you shelve how you're feeling. But I know in my case and in many others, you're incapable of looking after yourself, let alone somebody else. So as well as struggling with that, there's enormous guilt and judgment that you're unable to do. The one thing your body was designed to do as, as a woman. Yeah, what you were designed to do. And I think what people also don't understand about PND is your body is malfunctioning at the time. Mm. So yes, it's designed to do one thing, but as we know, it can also not do things that it's supposed to do well, yes. um, given circumstances of chemical imbalances, which is exactly what you were experiencing. And uh, did you have PND with both Helena and Amelie or just Amelie? Just with Amelie and it was in the later stages of my pregnancy, which I actually think was triggered by a terrible news story that I covered. But I know we're going to get to chatting about the impact of world news um, and your daily job and how that may impact your mental health. Um, But I know I started at about 36 weeks and I had obviously a sort of mental and emotional symptoms, but lots of physical ones like gastro issues and weight loss. Um, you know, um, hot and cold flushes. Like I felt terrible physically as well as emotionally and mentally. Do you think people still hold, uh, are there people in your life that still judge you and think that that wasn't real and you should have soldiered on more? I remember at the time there were some comments from very, people very close to me and my family that this was just a, an indication that I loved my job more than I loved my baby or that I loved my independence more than I loved a family. Mm. Um, And so it was as though my personality was a precondition or I was to blame for my mental illness. I'm not entirely sure those moves, those, uh, I'm not entirely sure that those attitudes have shifted. I, I generally found I moved away from people I didn't feel safe around. I know also at the time and even afterwards, people have said to me in recent times, like, do you regret speaking out because your kids will get old enough to search the internet and find all the things you felt and said, aren't you ashamed? And um, my answer is no, because, <laughs> um, because I felt so much shame because I felt alone. And I know for a fact, because I still get contacted almost daily by women who don't have the words or platform um, or freedom to express what they're feeling saying, I see myself in you. Um, so I don't feel shame, but I do know that there there are people that still hold those views. And I think what's unfortunate is that people don't understand that you can have postnatal depression and also be an independent career-driven person. And those two things don't need to trade off. And what can sit in the middle of both of those things is a loving human being who's trying their best. I see your approach to parenthood and actually your journey is very akin to my own mother's who had postnatal depression and was an incredibly driven career woman. But more than anything, what I actually respect, which some people might judge, is that you are not only defined by your role as a mother, Mm. that there is more to Antoinette and that you're proud to have a holistic 
view of your life. And uh, I think, well, uh, let me actually ask this a different way. Do you think that when people become parents, it is such an enormous experience that by virtue of the role becomes encompassing, but shifts so much into their identity that they lose part of who they are? I think if you ask almost any woman, she's at some point, either before children, during pregnancy or in the aftermath, questioned her role and identity as much as women. And I'm a, I'm a fierce feminist, as you know, and as much as women have made gains to not only be defined by their uterus or whether they have children or not, there's still an enormous um, amount of judgment about what you do, whether you have children, what age you have children, whether you have it in wedlock, whether you have two or three. Yes, it's not the 1950s anymore, but those attitudes linger. And so I think it's especially difficult for women trying to carve out a role for themselves and maintain their identity, even if that identity is to be a full-time stay-at-home mum and, and, and embrace it. I have sisters who are full-time stay-at-home mums. They feel at the other end of the judgment, like at the judgment stick, where there are people at school drop off who look at them and like, oh, well, your kids are at school. Are you going to go back to work? There's so much expectation and so much judgment around what a woman does after children. I know particularly for me, finding that path and independence and economic independence was especially important because I grew up with so much disadvantage and I grew up with parents who were pulled out of school in year eight, a mother who barely has had any language skills or barely literate even in her first language. And I saw um, with her and my aunties just how vulnerable that left them. They were you know, often economic prisoners in, in domestic violence, awful, awful violent relationships. I saw how disempowered they were. I saw the lives that they led and said how much they suffered. So people often say to me, like, what drives you? Um, you know, cause I didn't know anybody who went to university. I was discouraged from finishing school. What drove me is seeing the women in my life suffer, suffer with mental illness undiagnosed, but suffer because they lacked autonomy. To, to take care of their, to take charge of their future and their mental health. Autonomy, that's the word. Yeah, I, I was going to describe you as independent and strong, but I think a more fitting word is autonomous. And I think that's a virtue and a characteristic that should be celebrated, not shunned with women. And I think there could be fear in the world for people to see more autonomous women coming up. Do you feel as though there's a climate of that? It depends which cultural circles. I think generally with females, yes, broadly speaking, if you see a woman in the public eye can express an opinion and she'd be called, you know, pushy and abrasive. A man could mm. say the exact same thing and he would be a leader and inspiring. Um, and then if you, there are added layers to that if you have intersecting identities. Because I come from an Arabic-speaking background and a refugee background with really strong patriarchal structures in place it's even more like oh my god like you see you have you do too much you say too much be quiet mm. um and so i think yes by and large people still don't like that it's why we don't embrace female leaders in politics it's why female commentators make people uncomfortable it's why female actresses or anybody with an opinion um, are often bullied or trolled or told to back down it makes people uncomfortable the patriarchy is alive and well and it gets worse i think in certain subcommunities subcommunities you wrote a book called how to lose friends and influence white people yes. best title ever yes uh which i've taken a lot from and you've done a ted talk uh, in your bio in your intro i'm going to do all the ridiculously amazing things you've already accomplished at your very young age and still yet to climb what 
uh, I'd like to hear in your words, what's the one thing you wanted people to take out of the book? What I want people to realise is that your anti-racism journey is a journey and that nobody is free from bias and racism. Mm. Even as a woman of colour, I'm constantly doing work to be a better ally to First Nations and other black communities. I'm constantly stuffing up. I constantly have to learn. There is so much unconscious bias and things built into our systems that reinforces prejudice and discrimination. And so wherever you are, just don't be complacent. Also, don't feel guilty about wherever you are and realise that this is something we have to continue to work on. Unfortunately, there are so many people who won't even take the first step. They'll go, oh, I don't see colour. We all bleed the same. All lives matter. They say all of these kind of bullshit statements which don't mean anything and which are actually true, untrue. Unless you're colourblind, you see colour. We, we all have inherent bias that we need to address. Um, so, yes, realising that this is an ongoing journey. I know you asked for one, but I'm going to give you two because I'm always a little bit extra. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is to acknowledge your privilege and don't be ashamed of it. So often people, and I talk about this, there's some research in, that I cite in my book that when people were confronted with in, injustice, it made them feel uncomfortable about their indifference. And rather than empathise with the scenario, so a list of scenarios, for example, you know, the two black girls were followed around in a shopping centre by a security guard, assuming that they were shoplifting or whatever it might be. Rather than feel empathetic, people's reactions, the, the researchers observed, was they were more likely to get defensive and start to lean into things in their life that was a bit hard, rather than understand that they're privileged. And if they walk it through a shopping centre, it's unlikely they'll be followed. And so I think people need to sit and acknowledge their privilege and it is not a bad word my daughters are so much more privileged than sort of povo me with the refugee parents who couldn't speak English and you know given how much disadvantage and violence I grew up around and trauma from the war that my parents had experienced my kids biggest problem is if they have to share a bed at the W when we're traveling overseas they're like my life is the worst this is awful you know, like that's their, that's the hardest thing they've endured. My kids are incredibly privileged. I am so much more privileged. And so once you acknowledge your privilege, you can be a straight, white, middle-aged man called Andrew. And more Andrews are likely to be CEOs than women in, a, in this country. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you don't have, it doesn't mean that you can't do work. It doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It doesn't mean you asked for it. Like I didn't ask to be born straight. You know, I'm, I'm straight. I have I experience certain things that gay people don't simply because of virtue of my sexuality. That's okay. Like I'm not I'm not guilt. I don't feel guilty for being straight. I don't feel guilty for being educated. Um, but what am I going to do with those privileges? Matters more than sitting in it feeling guilty and then rejecting everything because being privileged makes you uncomfortable. And step two after that's been achieved to actually unlock behaviours that are anti-racist or at very least not biased what's what comes next well i think there's so much out there there are so many resources out there where you can test your bias like literally uh, there's a harvard 
study online, a little thing you can do online. There are books you can read. If you don't like books, there are movies, there are podcasts. There's so much you can do as an individual to challenge yourself. One thing I'd say don't do is turn to the closest Asian or brown person you know or your Uber driver who has an accent and ask them to do the work for you or explain it for you. Whenever there are world events, whether it's you know with the voice uh, referendum, which we just had, or when Black Lives Matter happened, or now with the, with the war in the Middle East, don't turn to people who are already marginalised and traumatised and ask them to do the work because mm. the, re- the resources are out there and you can do it yourself. One of the things that stood out to me, I don't know if it was in your TED Talk or in your book, but, and I might have misunderstood the sentiment, but it was along the lines of if you miss out on certain opportunities and you are in a position of privilege, like for example, me, I'm the textbook privileged person I'm, and I'm trying to become more and more aware of that, that sometimes if you don't get something because someone else got a leg up, you need to become okay with that. Yes. And I agree. I know that there are others who would say... But the best person should get the job or some rubbish like that. Yeah, and, and I think the outcome of the referendum just that we just had kind of points to that, which is I don't want any division. We're all equal. We're all fighting for the same thing. But in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but that's a very black and white perspective shouldn't we if we can allow someone to boost up without us going down well that's that's failure to take that first step which is one of the first two steps i just explained which is realizing there's disadvantage and there's privilege when people refuse to acknowledge that inequality then there's never going to be um no one will embrace the next step like they didn't embrace the referendum we are one people don't divide us we're already divided we are not one people. We have huge disparities between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people in life outcomes, incarcerations, death during birth, child mortality, everything. Um, but that's that failure to even take that first step. So unless you do that first step and actually understand bias and disadvantage and privilege, you're never going to be okay with a scholarship that goes to a woman, a woman in science or a mentorship program or targets for people with disability or people with other marginalised identities because you refuse to believe that there's not a level playing field. And so I, I use this example in a talk I gave recently. If there's a super tall guy at a cinema and you're all there to watch you know, 50th anniversary of Dirty Dancing at the IMAX theatre, let's say, uh, or a theatre that is flat. And there's a super tall guy and he's sitting in the middle and he's blocking the people behind him. And so you move shorter women and people in the front row or people in wheelchairs in front of him or you create another level so that they can see. That bloke in that chair would be like, why are they getting treated differently? Why do they get a different chair? It's like, well, the end result is for you both to be able to see the screen. It just so happens that from your vantage point, you're elevated. And so the end game is everyone wants to watch Patrick Swayze say nobody puts baby in the corner. You all get the same thing, except the people who are short and people in wheelchairs need a different seat or they need to sit at the front. It's as simple as that. And yet people would be like, but why do they get a different seat? It's like, bro, you can still see the screen. Like, it's okay. You're not disadvantaged. They can now just reach the level of comfort that you've experienced your entire life. And that's how privilege and bias can become 
a win-win on or net zero kind of gain yeah for everyone because yeah. that tall person moving to the back wouldn't be worse off necessarily but everyone else can be better off if he just steps back for a second yeah he can he can either step back or they can create a different path or a different lane or a different platform for them to be able to achieve the same result which is see the screen and so when people start to be like why are they getting something different and it makes them so uncomfortable and there's this absolute lack of accountability or understanding that they've had doors opened or they have had comfortable seats for a very long time and and we're still in many ways at that point with people who are stubbornly against any of these efforts because they're just like well too bad if they can't see like too bad if they're the whole the whole too bad if the whole film is blocked to them. That's not my problem. Why do people think too bad? How does that person think to themselves, I don't care if people are worse off than me? Where does that come from in human nature? There is an inherent lie. There's a lie that's been sold to people and they repeat it time and time again. Politicians repeat it. People send, send me angry messages. I get it. At, I get questioned every time I speak at an event. Meritocracy. Shouldn't the best person get the job? This belief that if you are the smartest and the best person, you will just forge ahead. If you are vigilant and hardworking or whatever, and you're at that cinema, you'll somehow see the screen. You'll, you don't have to do acrobatics, but if you really wanted to, you could see the screen, just work harder. It's that belief in meritocracy, which completely ignores or just thinks that bias is a lie. It doesn't accept that females are less likely to be called for a second interview because by virtue of the fact they're female. All those studies would show if you have an ethnic sounding name, you're so much less likely to get a call up for the first interview, let alone a job. Despite mountains and mountains and mountains of evidence, it's because people don't take that step of acknowledging that privilege. They're guarding that privilege rather than, hey, just acknowledging that's kind of, that's helped me get to the second round of interview, probably got me a promotion. It sits uncomfortably with them to have to question, do I have the merit? Am I good enough or smart enough? And that goes back to the probably overused analogy that you get as well, which is that not everyone starts at the same starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And that therefore it's not just the best person wins because if the best person if all the best people started at the exact same point in the starting line sure we might be able to have the an apples for apples discussion but that's just not the way the world is yes what can you think of a moment or a time where you really started to think is this career sustainable for me given the amount of trauma i'm exposed to on a daily basis Yeah, about 12 months ago, I hit quite a low point with my mental health where a lot of my symptoms of a sort of anxiety, insomnia, I was probably drinking too much, my self-care wasn't good. I realised, okay, this balance isn't right. I was at a writer's festival and start bawling my eyes out on stage. I was triggered by something. And this is by the sort of person, I don't, I barely cry. I'm not that sort of person. Um, and I was like, I couldn't contain myself. Maybe the audience thought it was really, uh, really moving. But for me, I kind of just lost control of my my emotions and I was spiraling. At that point, I realized something had to change. Um, and so it wasn't that I'm completely retreating from the media. I'm diversifying what I do. I'm adding satire and, and comedy and I'm writing columns about 
like lots of different topics, mundane topics, not mundane, but just kind of everyday stuff as well. So it's not constantly looking into, you know, inequity or war or trauma or racism because that was taking too much of a toll. One of the things I also said in my book, I advised people, um, and I thought I have to practice what I preach, is that if you need a break, you can step away from the arena. The world's not going to collapse if you're not doing your job. There are other people. The world will be just fine. Do what you need to do to look after yourself, but importantly, come back in a capacity that works for you. And I think career breaks is something that we should be talking about more, but put that to the side. Has there ever been an image or a video that you've watched in the newsroom or on your phone as you were prepping for a story or even a story of body of text where you were like, shit, and that just stuck with you and like a week later you couldn't shake it? Well, currently all the images coming out of Gaza are harrowing um, and I, you know, I can't unsee or unfeel the atrocities, the indiscriminate killing of children, um, and so you know, there have been so many deaths and so many bodies. And, you know, I've seen a lot from independent journos or people I follow on social media that aren't part of sort of a mainstream media outlet, which is more likely to either blur or put trigger warnings. So that has been awful. Awful because there are children and awful because it's bloodshed and awful because awful things are happening. But also because of my connection to that region because you know my family came as refugees from that region because my sister and dad were there in Lebanon when there was the Israel Hezbollah war and got evacuated so they're quite triggered by it so there's the familial kind of connection but also just a connection as a human and as a mother seeing harm done to I don't care you know what nationality or religion somebody is any harm done to civilians has been heartbreaking I think something that probably has stuck with me longer and I didn't realise it at the time was when I was heavily pregnant and starting to have bad thoughts and poor mental health, I was covering the Martin Place siege, um, the Link Cafe siege. I was sent there, maybe 36, 35 or 36 weeks pregnant to check out the story. There was threats of a... I think the news desk called me from home and said rather than come into the office why don't you go straight to martin place we're hearing a bomb scare or something it's probably nothing you know often we go to things that are nothing and we go home so they didn't know and i didn't know and i ended up staying there reporting nationally and doing crosses with cnn and radio stations for hours and hours and hours that has stuck with me and i think that actually contributed to a whole bunch of things contribute to sort of emotionally and mentally unraveling. But I think that covering that so heavily pregnant, particularly when a pregnant woman was killed inside, I think that's something that has stuck with me. And as the hostages ran out, and that is something that, you you know, you won't forget. It's obvious why it would stick with you, because it's a traumatic incident of people being captive in a very violent situation. You were pregnant, work stress. I want to just unpick that one level deeper. What part of that situation at a maybe a values or a philosophical level do you think threatened something in your psyche that really got to the core of who you are? Was it that that you've, you're witnessing people be stripped of their power and power is really important to you? You know what? I probably haven't sat down and reflected that deeply. I think the fact that at that time I was potentially unsafe myself we didn't realize the 
the breadth or depth of that threat. At the time, there were claims that there were bombs around the city. And so staying there was and reporting was a threat to my life and my unborn child's. Luckily, that didn't eventuate. And, you know, this is something I didn't do anything hugely noble. I'm no war correspondent. I just got sent to a story which happened to be a massive, you know, national um, hostage terror story. Um, So I think being there, not knowing the magnitude of the threat, but also being pregnant, and I think because of one of the women inside ended up being shot um, actually by a stray police bullet, I believe, when they went in to get them. The two lives taken at once. I think that's what really what really affected me. Yeah. It's funny. It's only recently the last week or the last few weeks I was in an armed robbery myself uh, in when I was 19. I was packing up the bar at the club that I was working in whilst I was at uni. And I remember we were closing up and the manager had double bolted the door as they do every night. And uh, we're at the very corner of, of the um, serving area doing the last bit of counting. And these two guys just started smashing on the door in balaclavas, one with a gun and one with a, a crowbar. They managed to rip down the locks and came in. And I remember thinking... This is not real. Yeah. This is not happening right now. And they asked us to, because it was just the staff left, to get on the ground and, and stare at the floor. and Terrifying. Very scary. And they go upstairs and they talk with the manager about unlocking the safe. And you can hear that happening. And as that's not going the way they want it to, you can hear their frustration increasing. And you're not sure if what's above your head or what's going to happen. And two reflections on that as of late. One is... It's interesting that that hasn't affected me really uh, up until this point or at least way less than the invisible shit that doesn't exist in the real world like OCD and intrusive Mm. thoughts about morality and existentialism. (laughs) But the second thing is I was sitting in my friend's um, clinic and I just had this feeling all of a sudden, well, what if people came in here right now? Because my brain now has evidence to pull on that that could happen. Mm. And I started to feel quite anxious and tense. And the realization was, well, maybe there's some splinters under there that I need to go and work on. And that trauma can be largely processed, but still sit with us and take who knows what of a trigger to bring that back to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And... (sighs) I also wonder if in searching for an understanding of mental illness, whether it's easier or makes us more comfortable, if we can pinpoint it to an event, we can say that triggered it. And no doubt life events do add to trauma and mental illness. But I think that also kind of undermines the broader school of thought and understanding of mental illness. It's the immaterial things that haven't happened. Yeah. The unexplainable things, you know, it, that's still a rational explanation that that may be triggered because people say, what happened? What, what's wrong? What did you do? Like, as though they would be more comforted. And when I would then start to go, oh, maybe it was that. They're like, oh, yeah, yep, yep, we get it now. We accept it. And I, I almost feel like, oh, am I leaning that? Yes, it contributed, but am I leaning that into that more 
falling into that same trap where we need to understand tangible and real things to justify feeling a certain way when really we know that, and as you would know, everything can be perfect, picture perfect. You can tick every list off your bucket list and still be in the absolute depths of despair. And it's not until we're comfortable with that, knowing that there's no explanation, then we've really began to you know, scratch the surface of mental illness. A fucking man. <laughs> yeah, until you can accept the unacceptable and to the psyche that is for something to be left in nonsense, we do start to get somewhere. Mm. Which Because you then stop digging around and over-rationalizing and then you actually just start feeling. And feeling in the present, in my experience, has been the gateway through as opposed to thinking in the past or thinking in the future. It's feeling yes. in the present enables us to truly heal and become let our nervous system become um, in a regulating state. Speaking of, mm. what is the two things that are non-negotiables for you now to keep yourself afloat? Sleep. Yep. I need at least eight hours. I'm a big sleeper. Exercise. I know that sounds really boring, but sleep and exercise. I exercise about five times a week and I have to... I have to absolutely see if I don't sleep two nights in a row well I start to unravel mm. and so my family my friends everybody knows that that's just a part of who I am and what I do they can't be offended or inconvenienced or whatever it's just what I do complete non-negotiables what about you uh sleep I I um I don't know if you've ever seen there's this dog on YouTube called Rusty he's a narcoleptic sausage dog okay and he just runs around and falls asleep in paddocks it's that. me <laughs> I swear to God, I sleep so fucking much. Yeah. And I I don't know if that's a condition or if it's just who I am, but... Like how much? Like 10 hours a night. Okay. And I I'm mean, it's, it is a bit like a child. But <laughs> I'm a big child. But I'm also like a fear that I've been having recently is I'm getting to an age now where I need to think about having a family. Yeah. No, I need to. I want to. Yeah. And I, I find myself doing little tasks. Like, for example, setting up for this podcast, I was going through all my tech equipment and that took hours and I'm like trying to audit, see what I need to buy. And Or on Sunday morning, I was just so, so exhausted and I ended up waking up at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And I keep questioning whether I can be a father because... I don't know how I would let go of A, the nice to haves, but mm. B, the need to haves. And unfortunately, my need to have list is bigger than most to keep myself afloat, like the sleep and the diet. Well, my answer to that is find a Danny. And Danny is my husband. Um, One of my best friends who I love with all my heart. Because what I lack, he, thank God I married a man who doesn't need much sleep. Yeah. Because he sleeps with like four hours a night, yeah, or five, like he can function on five. Because when I was at my worst and he was had to care for me and for our newborn, I was sleeping in another room, highly medicated, yeah. and he was getting up and doing the night feeds and going to work and whatever. And so, whatever shortfalls I have, I he him. is my partner, and that's real parenting, it's a partnership. And so, I think, especially with you, at least you go in, you're going into this eyes wide open. You you know, you live with this and you know them. This is something we discovered after. Yeah, that must have been. You so got side, sidelined. Yeah, and, and I'm just super lucky that it was a real, you know, collaborative effort. And so, you know, maybe when you're out dating, you'll be like, 
do you sleep in? Are you a heavy sleeper? <laughs> that can be your. <laughs> that can be something you call. You'd be like, oh no. Do you run off little sleep because I need this from a fertility <laughs> perspective? I'm I mean, and and, and by the way, would you like a drink? Yeah. <laughs> like, just do that. Um, can you survive on four hours and you don't mind if I go in a tech rampage for? <laughs> Okay, we, we can one. we can reproduce. But for real, no. and like non-conventional things is really important to me. Like, for example, I like the idea of sleeping in separate rooms. But a partner might be like, fuck that. That's a lack of affection. That signals a breakdown in relationship. But yeah. as an introvert who wants to recluse to my own space and just have four corners of the world somewhere that's mine that I don't share with anyone. Yeah. Like, how, is that again just finding the right partner? That I gets think it's it? find the right. I mean, I'm by no means a relationship expert. Either that'll find a king bed because it's big enough that you have your own space. No, I need a I need a room that's just mine because I think everything in life is shared, and and children is the ultimate selfless act where you go, basically, take my life. Yes. <laughs> have yeah. have all my attention and priority yeah. and blah yeah. blah blah. Where and maybe this is a question for you. Where do you go? Where's the one by one square meter patch of the world where you're like, this is Antoinette's and no one else's, and I get to guard. Well, it. that's my work. My work is where I feel autonomous and in my element and doing my own thing. That's mm. where I feel. And, and where do you anchor in a physical location your work to? Is that your study desk? Uh, I probably need – I'm an extrovert and I feed off people. Like I'm an extra extrovert. Like I'm not the sometimes intro. I'm the yeah. capital E extrovert. I also grew up as in a family, one of nine, and so space was limited. And So it's not a high need. No. no. I enjoy, if anything – my husband will come home and find all the neighborhood kids in the backyard and I've invited everyone over and he's just like, holy shit, there's 30 people. I just came home from work. So I like people around me. Yeah. So that's probably not something I need. Um, but I, yeah, people often say, you know, this maternal instinct when you have a child, you just feel when they need you. It's like, no, I could sleep through a whole night and my husband was like, I got up three times, so-and-so vomited. And I'm just like, I just don't Give have you the playback. I just don't have the. I just don't hear it. I'm such a deep sleeper. Do you wear an eye mask? No. Earplugs? No. Nothing. Just out. I'm just out. Praise God. I know. It's like it's impressive. I mean, it's impressive. Like bears would find my sleep patterns and behaviors impressive. I'm not sure other mothers would. You're full hibernating like every night. Yes. Like really Incredible. deep sleep. Incredible. <laughs> and, so, and then you know he's up and. Yeah, but that we have a partnership and it works. Well, I think that's the key, right? Is that word partnership is, I, I don't know. I haven't unpacked this enough. I need to do it in therapy, but am I scared to trust someone that much? Am I scared to not provide to the full extent or be able to protect? And, and how do I lean on the coping tools I know that I have to if some of that stuff is taken away by virtue of the demands. Like even if a Sunday afternoon I'm chilling, I'm like, okay, groceries, unwind, get ready for the week. I'm like, if there was a little kid running around here, where's the peace? But someone else told me, oh, you love them and your biology kicks in and everything else. But I'm like, yeah, but what if it doesn't? Then you can find the peace. I don't think you need to wholeheartedly succumb your life and identity in every part of your time to your child. If you need those moments of times out, time out or another room or a sleep in or you do that. Like something Danny and I do is we give each other space to be and feel and do what we want. We don't manufacture that it all has to be together to be happy because it doesn't. Mm. Um, and when you're your better version of yourself, you're a better parent. So if that means... 
Oh, and the other thing is like, I'm surprised I haven't fallen asleep on this couch. I like fall asleep everywhere as well. And so I could be like the kids playing and add a barbecue and I'm like napping on the couch. You're rusty the narcoleptic sausage dog. <laughs> yes, I this am. Whole time. And it's funny right because, in front of us. because I have two speeds. I'm like, go get a hundred miles an hour yeah. or hibernation. absolute hibernation. Yeah, right to that. And so I'll do so much in my alert active stage. I yeah. am there so much for my kids. And then I'm comatose. And then uh, deep rest stage. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and you find the balance and you find those spaces for yourself. Mm. So, I mean, I feel like this has taken a turn for me comforting you yeah. into ways no, to like, like have this. children. This <laughs> and, is the type of podcast that I want to run. <laughs> and trust people in a relationship <laughs> yeah. based on I have no expertise yeah, in this so area. so less about you, now about me. <laughs> And back to you. So I find this question pretty interesting. What's a story you used to tell yourself, but you don't tell yourself anymore? I used to tell myself that I can beat mental illness, Mm. that I can bookend it and that it will be something that's one and done. I no longer tell myself that. I tell myself that I live with mental illness. It's part of who I am. It's imperfect, but beautiful in other ways. And I will forever be managing it. I was so adamant to be goals oriented and beat it. Um, And I've resigned to the fact that that's not going to be my journey. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given in your life? (sighs) Don't over pluck your eyebrows because they won't grow back. (laughs) That's one. That's one. Um, That's a fucking cracker. That's a really important one. That's super important. Mm. Good eyebrows, by the way. Paid for after I overplucked them. Thank you. Beauty. Um, gosh, another one. Without sounding cliche or like a slogan on an Etsy t-shirt. Just you do you. Mm-hmm. I have never listened to what other people expected of me. Not my careers advisor who told me I wouldn't make it to university. Not my dad who told me to drop out of school in year 10. Not people in my industry who thought somebody with my name and my look wouldn't make it in commercial television. I have never listened to anybody. So just do what you think is right for you. So I love that. To help people who want to adopt that not turn into an ignorant narcissist. How do you do you but in a healthy way that's sustainable is there any guardrails you can kind of put on to that yeah well i mean provided you're not doing harm to anybody else by doing you it's just like well i'm just doing me and i'm a violent drunk it's like mm. well no not, it doesn't work that way do you if by being you you're being good to yourself and you're bringing goodness to society all the work i do whether it's in mental health advocacy in my media work in my anti-racism advocacy all kind of fall under the umbrella of trying to make things a bit less shit for myself and for the world. And so when I lean into being me, it's not so that I'm, you know, committing white collar crime and avoiding tax and Mm. all the other stuff. It's without trying to, I'm no Gandhi, uh, but it's all trying to do good. I think the reason I'm pushing on it is it's, it's, Everyone wants to be authentic in theory, but practice is really hard. So I'm trying to unpick the mindset that like in moments where you doubt yourself or in moments where you're like, oh, I, I want to, I should conform to a social opinion right now. What do you tell yourself 
that enables you to stay true to who you are and asking kind of another way, whichever feels the right way to come into this answer. Where did you learn or earn? Who did you see in your life being real? Because usually it comes from a role model where you're like, okay, I now have permission to do that. I never had a role model in a career sense because I didn't know anybody who went to university or any professionals around me. But what I was able to see with my mum was a strength and a commitment to her values, irrespective of what life threw at her. And life threw a lot of crappy things at my mum. So her ability to be unashamedly her, even though some people found it um, confronting, she T- does. Tell me an example where you remember like, seeing your mum being unashamedly her. Like she was, she was comfortable to say things that made people uncomfortable. Like I remember I had like a face full of acne as a teenager. We went to a dermatologist. I don't know how she scraped the money to see a dermatologist. And we couldn't afford whatever the medication he wanted to give me. And I remember her saying, she's like, I can't afford this. Like I want to help my daughter, but I can't afford this. You can help my daughter. What can you do to help my daughter? I'm not leaving here until you help my daughter. And so she put shame, pride, whatever down to try and help me. And I remember he turned around and he like gave us a samples box of all of the stuff. He's like, here, take all of my samples. And so she wasn't uncomfortable showing vulnerability. She wasn't uncomfortable going, I'm not leaving here without an answer. Mm. I mean, that's just one way to like help my acne. I love that. Um, She would also... She was a little bit brazen um, in her delivery. Maybe it was the language barrier, but she never sugarcoated things because she'd seen and ex- explored a lot. So I always knew that life was, could be really unfair and really tough and particularly unfair on women. Um, and so I guess because she never sugarcoated anything, I don't either. Um, and even though I could see that doctor, I was so embarrassed at the time going, oh, don't tell him we can't afford it. Um, but even just kind of putting him on the spot and going, you have the power to do something, do it. And he did. And my pimples are gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> and now you're going. <laughs> no, that it's so cool because usually when a value trait is present in someone, particularly if it's not uh, overly popular or traditional, they have seen it in someone that they've respected and thought, I'm going to try this on for size. And once they've put the jacket of authenticity on, go, yeah, I fucking like this. I look good in this. Yeah, yeah. And they're able to double and triple down. And so do you have a practical sentence or action that people can take if they weren't able to see authentic role modeling in their younger years, how they might be able to become more of themselves in daily life? I guess the overarching title of my book is How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. And I guess that is a... A cheeky take on Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends. And I think it's being able to sit in the discomfort of not winning a popularity vote or knowing that you might not be digestible. And if by being you and doing what you believe in makes people who are part of the problem uncomfortable, you should be okay with that. Like I know I'm struck off a whole bunch of people's Christmas lifts. I know a whole bunch of people and I'm like, I'm okay because I think you're dickheads Mm. and I don't want to be liked by dickheads. Um, And so, but I think a lot of people struggle with that. I think Mm. people really want to people please. Um, I don't know how I, maybe because I'm the fifth of seven children and I got ignored and I just had to do my own thing and I was never, you know, I was never mollycoddled. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I just know that 
I have the one thing people often say to me either privately or professionally is I wish I could say I think what you like I believe what you do and say I back you I wish I could say it I wish I could um, I don't know if that makes me brave or indifferent or whatever um, but I just remind myself who do I want sitting around me at my dinner table who do I want reading my eulogy who do I want barracking for me at my birthday, who do I want? And if they're not people I respect or who are like making this world a better place, like go away. Yeah, I don't need your approval. One thing that came up for me as you were talking is a sense of, I think we are invited to be more authentically ourselves if we feel as though there will be a base number of people that will accept that unconditionally. As in, we're more likely to jump off into a cliff of controversy or um, non-convention if we know that there are people all around the cliff who would be like rain hail or shine no matter how this goes i got your back and your love like you have a, a a family and a friendship base i think now where with every, every time that becomes more solid and you feel mm. more loved, you almost have a bigger platform to be authentically yourself because you don't need that bullshit Yeah, validation. I think that's, that's, that's true. And I would say that comes from a position of privilege by being in a, in a loving, supportive relationship, by having so many siblings who we're super close to. Like, I, you know, I have four sisters and two brothers. If I had no friends and just had my partner and my siblings – I'm good. Yeah. yeah. I've got a solid group of friends who I've been friends with for a very long time. So I think, yeah, I think that gives you more confidence to know that if all else fails, you have a partner, loving parents. It's loving like a siblings. risk analysis in yeah. a way. And maybe your subconscious is doing that. It's like maybe you won't go spend that investment if you don't have savings that you can fall back on or a property investment. Yeah. So you won't invest in that other business. But yeah, sure. Yeah, like, that's cool. probably true. I'll that- roll the dice because if shit goes belly up, I don't give a fuck. I'm happy with what I have. Yeah, that's true. And that's probably something someone like you from the outside can witness you know when you're in it and you maybe take it for granted that that family and close friend base that i Mm. have um, which perhaps others don't yeah Yeah, and unconditional love yeah thanks antoinette not allowed to call you tony (laughs) appreciate you being here good chat that was great loved it so many little fun snippets for us in there emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced and so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions come along. So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not act, adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but it then it begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind to relax and settle away itself.